Good morning and welcome to HR Tech Weekly, One Step Closer with Stacey Harris and John Sumser. How are you doing, Stacey? I'm doing well, John. It is January. Uh, it's warming up just a little bit here in Raleigh, so at least we get to see the sunshine. And uh, we're heading off into the busiest part of the season here in a few months. So we're we're all, I think, hunkering down and getting some work done right now. So you're way down there in the south, and it's still cold. Did you follow the uh, the Alabama-Georgia football game the other night? Did you watch that? I I did not, but I heard all, you know, let, let me just tell you that up and down my street, you could hear cheers and moans and groans. Um, so it was, I'm not a big fan on either side of those, but there were definite uh, lines drawn in my neighborhood. <laughs> that's That's funny. That's yeah. funny. Lines drawn in the neighborhood over the football rivalry. That's yes. that's fantastic. So it's the quiet time. It's the quiet time, and and yes. um, uh, people are heads down. Sometimes I think this is the only time of the year where people actually get work done. Yeah, <laughs> because you know, you and I start traveling. Well, I'm I'm on the road next week, but you and I start traveling intensely to vendor-related activities starting around the middle of March. And yep. and the, then everybody is busy throwing events and going to trade shows, and it's hard to imagine how things get done. Right now, it's quiet because people are getting things done. Exactly, which is which is a good thing. You know, we're all getting a lot of emails, but but we're all, you know, the, the, the bulk of work, I think, in, in our uh, – industry really the the heavy programming the heavy you know thinking the heavy strategy work oftentimes happens in this january february time frame uh, before the trade shows before the big events um you know because we run up basically through june july with our events um get a little bit of a break in the summer yeah kick back in in august we have a busy fall season and then it heads into the holidays so there's there's not much downtime, um, you know, in this cycle. I, it's interesting. I had someone the other day, you know, because we do the annual HR system survey that runs on sort of a similar cycle, and they were we were sort of just putting out the big annual review, but then we were also sending out a request for any changes people would like to make to the survey, and, and someone emailed me back and said, do you ever stop? And I was like, does business ever stop now? <laughs> Like no, the the process runs annually, just like everything else. So uh, yeah, it's it's this is the one moment when we have a little breathing room. So, so we've got we've got actually quite a bunch of stuff going here. You you know I I see that ISIMs require acquired um, text recruit. Yep, this uh, is probably the biggest announcement this week that I that I saw come across. Um, I was, you know, you know, obviously iSIMs we've been following for a long time. They're one of the few point solutions that show up in our research um, that's making a big splash and having a huge impact on what's happening in the talent management space. But you know the text recruit group a little bit better, John, or at least than we do. Any comments on this? Do you think this was a good move for iSIMs? Well, you know, you know, you and I were talking earlier today about how email response rates have dramatically fallen in the last year. I, yeah. I got to tell you, I got to tell you, I would never have imagined that text-based communication for recruiting would be a thing. <laughs> <laughs> right? That, 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 that's, I just, I just couldn't see it. I, I really couldn't see it. And and text recruit, as I understand it, in the beginning was a very functional um, get work done kind of tool. 
but it's become a communications platform of choice for the recruiters that use it. And so, so my sense is that as email response rates decline and recruiters have to get through to people, text has become a, a fantastic alternative and text recruit was right there with the right idea. So I, I think kudos to the folks at text recruit and it's, it, iSIMS is such an interesting company. It's, it's kind of amazing that they are the first of the applicant tracking systems to really step into um, the, the text recruiting game. Well, you know, and I, I wonder this because I, you know, I agree that, you know, text, you know, my generation, boy, it makes me feel old to say that, right? But, you know, the idea of getting a job op- opportunity in your text, I, I you know, I, I use that, reserve that for only the people I know the most who text me, right? Or warning signals that, you know, there's a tornado in the area, something like that, right? But I, I don't give my cell phone number out for texts for very many things. Now, my my kids, my 22-year-old son, gives it out tremendously across the board. They get texts on everything. And so it reminds me very much of the early days of social technology and email technology and every new technology that has come along, which is that initially it's great because it's you're early to the game, you're the only one using it, and it's part of something that is sort of still somewhat on a, a lack of overload. You know, emails used to be the best way to reach people because you know, trying to reach them over the TV or trying to reach them on their social technology was just too overwhelming, too many things going on. Now emails have created an environment where you have focused and unfocused boxes and maybe six versions of focused and unfocused boxes. Um, and so do you think that will happen eventually to texting too? Then it'll just become a, a bunch of stuff that you're not paying attention to eventually? Well, all technologies have a um, sort of a value curve and the early adopters get that this is this is why technology sells. The early adopters in a technology that actually works get a disproportionate share of value. And that story, which is, oh, look at those folks over there. They're getting $10 for every dollar they spend. We should go do that. That's the basic marketing message of any technology. And that, that um, advantage for early adopters happens and happens and happens. And as the solution gets more popular, the advantage of using it declines. So this curve has a very high bubble at the top. And then it's got a dramatic drop off as people start using it across the board till you get to the bottom of the curve when the late adopters and the laggards um, uh, come on board and there's no net benefit and then the technology wears out. So, so there's a life cycle of technology, and email is most of the way through that life cycle. Um, it seems to me, but, but, but I've been wrong a lot about texting, it seems to me that the text life cycle will be shorter because it, there's not a good way to have a sustained idea. And... And it may be that what's happening is that we're starting to use digital technologies to prompt people to talk to each other uh, rather than doing it in the, um, um, in, the, in the body of the communication itself like we used to be able to do with email. 
Yeah, and I and I and I guess and maybe that's the uncomfort level I'm feeling with this. I think it's a great idea, and I think that you know ISIMS mm-hmm. is is catching an, a, a wave that is obviously important and timely for for the various generations that you know, we're trying to um, recruit. But I feel like this is something that may not last very long, and I think that you've just hit on it. It feels like this is a, might be a shorter time cycle than what we saw with email, which was almost a ten year life cycle. Um, are you kidding? Think, are you kidding? Email had a thirty-year life cycle. Well, email had okay. a thirty-year life cycle. You, you know, well, people, I, it, it's its peak adoption was ninety-six or ninety-seven, but it had been coming on since the late eighties. Uh, so, and I was thinking about like when it was being you know specifically used as a recruiting tool. Like you would actually send an email out. That's when I would like, what, when, when that was to me feels like it was like 10, 15 years ago, but maybe I'm wrong on that front. Maybe I'm, that's when oh, I started yeah, getting yeah. it. That's so what I, I, was, I was talking about email as a whole. I, I don't yeah. really see the utilization of email for recruiting purposes as being separate from email. Gotcha. So, but either way, I think twi- the 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 text messaging feels like it'll be shorter, and maybe it's because of what you just said that it, it doesn't feel like you can do as much with it. Now that might be that this communication method evolves with the way we want to use it, right? Maybe there will become ways to have longer conversations through the text message that becomes more sustainable, or as you said, it prompts us to actually have a conversation, which is one of the challenges right now that we try to avoid by using email tools and other things. So it'll be interesting well, to watch. Yeah, you know, you know, I, I guess, I guess my pushback would be that, uh, as 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 we talked earlier today, a lot of the email that you get, you either absolutely don't need to see, or you only need to know that it's there. It's like my voicemail. I don't, I, I don't listen to voicemail because all voicemail messages say the exact same thing. So what I need is a list of people who called. And you know, my tools give me a list of people who called, and so I call them back. I, and and if, they, if they left some message in the voicemail, I generally don't get it. Because listening is so – listening to a recording of somebody um, is so slow. So with text, often the thing that's most important is that the message was sent. And – and that's a trigger for other things, and and so that that could have a pretty long life to it, I think. Well, and let's sort of see where this goes. I I think that again, the life cycle of sort of how it's being used, and I guess some of it depends a little bit on the the commentary that ISIMS had in here is that you know it is text recruiting, but not just from a communications method. This is about outreach and campaigns as well. So maybe I'm thinking of it a little bit differently. So, so opportunity will be to take a look at it and see is this, you know, just messages to say, hey, you've got the signed up for this or, hey, we're going to want to interview you or, hey, we need you to do something. Or is this a campaign to say, hey, I want you to pay attention to this. Click on it. Come do something. Take an action, right? Yep. So smart of ISIMS to get the news about this out in the middle of this dead spot in the news cycle. That's, that's yep. fantastic. Well, and another company that's, I think, doing a similar um, sort of cycle of news during what would be considered one of the slower news periods in the HR technology space is Paychex. We talked a little bit about them last, well, not last week, but the week before. Um, We were talking about their um, uh, new rollout of a variation of their tool that is for the techs. 
um, uh, market and the people who are going to be doing your CPAs who will be doing your taxes so they can access information to do your taxes. And now they have another new rollout that they're doing that they're actually quite excited about. I, I think this is interesting from a work perspective. There are a lot of pros and cons to this. I don't know how many other pay, pro, payroll systems are doing anything like this, but they are tracking what they're calling um, net spend net tip network, which basically allows the restaurants. They have about 19,000 different restaurants that they have within their organ, you know, as a clients within their uh, application. That allows restaurants to track employees' tips, calculate the tip share and pulling amounts, and distribute the trips electronically at the end of a shift. Now. I used to be a waitress for many years, and the, you know, there was a great opportunity. You, know, you basically had cash on hand at all times, which was always a nice thing. And most of it was given in cash format back many, many years ago. <laughs> now I know when I go to the restaurant, generally if I leave a tip, I pay with my card, and I put the tip at the bottom of the card, and basically that's how they get their tips for the most part. So this will be interesting is that now it's not that I have to break out the money when that um, – when that worker leaves, now I can put it on a cash card and give it to them. So the cash card is basically available when they need it, but they're not walking out of the store with you know money in their pocket, which can be somewhat dangerous. Um, it also means that uh, they have the ability to sort of pull it a little differently, but it also means it's being tracked more carefully, and the companies know that what those tip amounts are. What do you think about this, John? I mean, this seems to be – Paychex is doing a lot of this type of thing right now, which is um, – Paying attention to these little places where there are pain points. I I love the the fact that Paychex is being so innovative. I think that's that's awesome. Um, um, this particular thing is a is an obvious problem that needs to be solved, but it's fraught uh, and 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 it's worth talking about the the risks here, the the relationship between restaurant owners and their employees is always um, sticky, right? It's always sticky. And there's a lot of cash moving around. One of the things that Paychex says about this solution is that it allows for increased cash flow in the business, mm -hmm. which means that, that they're talking about the fact that employers can now get access to the float on the tip pool. So that's the first thing. And then because managers touch the, the tip pool before the employees can get to it, uh, it means that managers have discretion about how tips are allocated. And that's a change in the power structure in the restaurant business. I don't know if you've seen this, but there are a lot of restaurants around here that have moved to the pooling of tips and the sharing of those tips amongst everybody in the restaurant. Yeah. And you have never seen grumpier service <laughs> people with shorter tenures than they are when now they have to pay the cooks and uh, the managers a share of their tips that they didn't have to pay before. So, yeah. so it seems to me that, that this is one of those places where, Technology does an interesting thing, but the actual organizational dynamics are going to be the real story over time. I bet that, that this, is, this is the beginning of something, not the end of it. And as, as pay card solutions for tips start moving across the restaurant industry, attrition 
in service positions is going to go up significantly. Well, and, and I don't disagree with you on this one at all. I mean, I, I was a I put myself through college waitressing tables, um, particularly third shift waitressing, which meant that, you know, um, many of the cooks were half asleep while you were trying to take care of the restaurant. So it was it's it's a tough thing when you're sort of. Um, and most people who aren't in the restaurant business don't realize that the waitress makes something like three dollars per hour. Um, now I think it was it was like two fifteen an hour when I was waitressing. So twenty years on, it's only added like a, a dollar. Um, so they don't actually make minimum wage, and some people don't even realize that. And so it's one of these things where I think the industry as a whole is changing. We've we've gone through the cycle where people thought, well, maybe we'll we'll get rid of the idea of tips and tell people not to tip, and that doesn't work. And I think you, know, you mentioned that's because these are basically commissions on something you provide as a service, and you know people don't want to sort of get rid of that idea. But I think this idea of putting more transparency in it, and definitely with the idea of do we split it across everybody, is everybody part of that, um, changes the dynamics of, of what it becomes in an organization, and particularly what it becomes in a service-based industry, right? Yeah, so it's a, it's it's an interesting thing, and it's and it is, it's it's probably more interesting to think about this as a change in the way that people use money and what and and a change in what people consider money. The attractive part of being a service professional in the restaurant industry was that tax fraud was embedded in the employment contract, <laughs> and this this way. This way, you actually have to pay your taxes. Yeah, and you have to, and you have to think a little bit more about sort of uh, how that all fits into the bigger picture with the rest of the the restaurant. You know, it there. You know, there was a lot of times as a waitress where you will oftentimes, you know, figure out ways to benefit your tip by helping the customer, but doesn't all the time benefit the rest of the restaurant. And so things like that come into play with this as well. That's right. It, it'll be a big political shift in this inside of a lot of restaurants. Well, talking a little bit about political shifts, and, and I don't know if this is actually political, but I, th- but I think it's sort of interesting. Um, we haven't heard a lot about big government um, sort of buy-in to HR technology yet. There was there was a, a bit of a story towards the end of last year about the Office of Personal Management sort of saying, hey, we're going to rethink the idea of what HR technology is. But there was an interesting story that came across just recently around the Treasury Department awarding Monster Government Solutions um, an award for talent acquisition software and services. This is a $51.4 million uh, five-year blanket purchase agreement with Monster Government Solutions. I don't know how much you know about sort of the government end of what Monster does, but this is sort of a BPO slash technology buy-in that also includes sort of all the various Monster technologies. Mm-hmm. So they mention a lot of the not only the talent applicant tracking system, but um, their uh, marketing and candidate management tools, as well as the classific- um, classification system and things like that. So what is your thought, John, on sort of – Organizations that have sort of entities focused just on government, you know, is that necessary? Is that an industry that has to sort of be separated out? And um, does it surprise you that this big of a deal was done with five years on for something like recruiting right now? So a couple of things. First thing is we haven't heard <clears throat> about Monster at all once since Runstad bought them. Mm-hmm. 
And what I'm noticing about Monster is that their advertising is starting back up. Their their public positioning is starting back up. And this is all about Monster, and it doesn't say Randstad anywhere in the yeah. in the um, in the thing. And I assume that it doesn't say Randstad anywhere in the thing because if if this story read the government buys a European owned um, applicant tracking system and HR outsourcing services, there would be fury in the um, in, in the certainly in the right wing and probably a little in the left wing, right? So so this is this is a place where Randstad really benefits from having Monster as a front name, but Monster, we should be clear, is totally owned by a European entity. Um, Very true. <clears throat> right. And and that's a big, that's a big deal that, that the um, 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 federal government, um, the treasury department is purchasing its HR services from a European company. Now that said, this is just a drop in the bucket. The the federal government um, employs twenty percent of the workforce. It's it's a big number. It's all government in the United States is about thirty five percent of the workforce, and I believe the federal government's share of that is in the is in the fifteen fifty percent of all government workers range. And what happens when the government, when the federal government does stuff, is the states tend to copy what the, what the federal government does. So this is a, a beachhead for Monster rather than an endpoint deal. <clears throat> I bet the total value of recruiting services that the government could buy from a private vendor is on the order of a billion dollars. So this is just the start. This is just the start. Well, and it seemed to be interesting from from the the perspective that there is more that they can capture in this market, right? I think you're right. Hearing more about them was something that caught my eye. I hadn't thought about the perspective that they were foreign-owned as a part of this conversation. So I think that's a, a really interesting um, side note, understanding sort of is this – is the reason they're having to go through monster government solutions, is there something different about that versus monster worldwide, right, um, that we don't aren't aware of, right, um, that has this ability as well? So. Well, so, so monster government solutions has always been a part of monster. The government, the government has more stringent hiring requirements than uh, uh, commercial entities do. Right. The, the government hiring is significantly more regulated and qualifications and merit are part of that process in a way that that would be unbelievably burdensome to a, a commercial operation. So in order to deliver good services that are compliant with the regulations they operate under, Anybody who sells to the government has a government services division. I'm sure okay. that that all of the big so so uh, certainly Oracle has a government services division and IBM. If you go to the DC area, there are IBM government services offices everywhere, and, 
SAP most certainly has that. Um, and it's kind of a sign. I'm sure Workday has a government services operation. It's kind of a sign that you have matured enough to be an actual big player that you have a government services operation. And, um, and that means that you understand the contracting rules. It means that you understand what's different, what you can and can't do. Um, and um, this has got to be really exciting for the people at, at Monster Government Solutions. Yeah. Well, and and you know they called a, a wholly owned subsidiary, subsidiary. So, and I guess part of this is a, an area where I probably have to do a little bit more research. I've I've heard of sort of government driven sort of industry specific functions inside of a lot of these companies, and I know some of them break off separate companies, but I haven't heard quite as many. So, so that's an area worth more investigation, just from my perspective. You know, there are also you know so the the regulations that are coming out across the board are driving um, a lot of changes both in recruiting, but also in our core HRMS market as well. Um, Another sort of thing that caught my eye this morning was the University of Toronto has basically identified the need to create a new gender identification inside of their HRMS. Now, this isn't anything, I think, new per se. We've been actually talking about the fact that core HRMSs are going to have to create more flexibility inside their systems. This is the first time I've seen an article about it, particularly at a university level, where they're basically adding the X gender identity. So if you are a transgender employee, you can now say MX, um, and they might add other gender identification options down the road, but they're trying to give more flexibility, and they're making it about the HR technology and its capabilities more so than just we're doing this as a process in our organization. Um, so they're talking about how this will be the addition of not only being able to add the MX um, as a gender inside their organization, but they're also talking about the fact that they're allowing people to be more precise in terms of which racialized community they are connected to um, or they want to be associated with and other personal identifiers. This is the first time I've seen it put in sort of an article about how people are talking about it. We've talked about it on the show already about the fact that some of these social issues that are coming across are also becoming big issues for HR tech. Do you think we're going to see more of this, John, this year? Or is, do you think this is just going to be common understanding that your, your system has to be flexible enough to handle everything? This will be the year that everybody adds this sort of flexibility, although I'm not sure that I can get all that excited about the fact that the drop-down menu now has MX after MS, MRS, and MR, and DR, and whatever the other um, um, salutations are. I'm not sure sure that that flips my switch, particularly as as a... (laughs) as a monstrous move forward in organizational flexibility, but maybe, maybe that's all that organizational flexibility is, is having a new category to put people in. Um, It it, it, it may not be as exciting, but it is something that is, if you don't have a category and you don't feel like you fit in it, it becomes really, really personal, right? So it's this idea of personal identification being important to me as an employee. Um, so the question is, have you ever filled out a form and not felt like you knew what you could put down or where you fit inside that form, right? 
if I thought that's what the diversity and inclusion initiatives were really about, I probably would not be an active proponent of those things. Um, the, the, the idea that, that this is a problem that can be solved by adding a category on a list, it hurts me to even think about that. Well, I don't think it can be solved that way. I think it's one of many issues that people are trying to address in a multitude of ways. And the technology is a part of the the a part of the overall problem, right? It's a part of the the system that needs to be addressed. Um and so for me, it's watching these organizations try to address it in ways that um seem very simple, seem like they aren't as important, but I think are actually very important when you think about how somebody comes into an organization and is in the onboard into an organization. My take on so, it. We're going we're gonna to run out of time today, but I think this opens the door to a really interesting conversation, and, and, and that is exactly what's the value of self-reported information? You know, as, as you were talking about this particular thing, I was going, well, mm, I like MX. I, I never really liked, you, you know, when I, when I lived on the East Coast, it was a big deal when the kids started calling me Mr., and when I got to the West Coast, they stopped calling me Mr. and started calling me John again. And, and, and initially, that felt like a demotion. <laughs> I'd earned my status as an adult. The kids all were required to call me by my title. And then I got to the West Coast, and nobody uses that stuff on the West Coast. It's a different culture here. Nobody is Mr. or Mrs. or Ms. anything. Um, they're just people. And... And so I'm looking at this thing and going, gosh, if I saw MX on a list, I probably would click that one. Um, and, and, and that makes me go, well, what, what really is the value of self-reported information? You can't, really, you can't really entirely believe it because there are people like me who will click a box because you can. And there's no... There's no loop that says you're not. I'm not allowed to click the MS box because I happen to be a man. I can click whatever box I want to click, and and then the people in the company count that as if it means something, and it doesn't really. Well, and so that it's an interesting conversation. We definitely need to have it because most of what our our data based um, modeling is driven off of, particularly in marketing and other areas, right? Is personal provided commentary on our information, right? And, and I think what we're going to see this year is that the Internet of Things changes that, that, that we're going to start having actual behavioral information and not self-reported information. And, and that will allow for greater precision in, in the work that we do. Yeah. Well, and that's what we didn't get to today, which is the um, interesting – there's some interesting data about VC investments being the biggest – in 2017, so it's it's worth taking a look. We might just put that on the HR Examiner article because I think it's worth people paying attention to how much VC money went into last year um, compared to any other year since the dot-com boom. And then there's we'll probably talk more about this next week. The consumer electronic show happened this week. There will be more reports about next week, but all the fun new stuff going on about that, including Internet of Things. So we'll have some updates from that probably next week. So uh, busy busy week, even though it's quiet, John. Well, fantastic. What a great conversation, and thanks again for doing it. I hope everybody who's listening enjoyed checking in today. Welcome to the winter. So thanks, <laughs> Stacey. We'll talk again next week. Yep, thanks, John. All
Bye-bye, everybody. Thanks for listening in.